Okay, so this is we're we're going along in this season, but say your name. I'm Aaron Nathans. I'm Michael G. Ronstadt. And you're listening to the, the Nathans, Nathans and Ron cast. Meow. <laughs> oh boy. Wait a minute, not cat. Not not Ron Cat. Uh, no. Michael Ron Cat is a cat that my friend has. And Michael Ron Cat is a thread that's going through all of this that no one knows anything about. It's probably weird. Superhero. But that's for Dave. Hi, Dave. And the whole family, you know. You like your cat. Cat's named after me. I got to appreciate mm. that. So, uh, we, uh, we have this a is, song. This is the most interesting song on the record, I think. Oh, it's kind of like got this chill vibe. It's different. Yeah. We... Two chords. Two chords. Thank you. The fact, you know what? The fact that I co wrote this song with Clarence Dan Blatchley. Did I get the name right? You did. Oh, good. Okay. Sometimes when, when the record button's going, I worry that I say things wrong, and I do. Um, anyway, uh, we interviewed Peter Blatchley. His uh, great nephew. Great nephew. For and, this episode. And like Clarence Dan Blatchley, who was a, an author, self-published. Uh, they had a family homestead that had a lot of history, a lot of family history in general. They're all like Renaissance people. It's wild. And uh, one of the things that you see in the poetry, that we took the words. Well, I mean, we have to yeah. first say that, that you this was not a traditional co-write with a living person. No, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the person... Um, that I co-wrote with, uh, wrote this piece in 1939 and has been um, gone for a long time. He died before both of us were born. And I added two stanzas to this piece of music because it needed something else to make it a song. Um, It was short. It was short, yeah. And we could have just jammed out for another 20 million minutes, but honestly, uh, I'm I'm hoping that you as a listener um, enjoy the extra words I put in there. And I'm really hoping that you can't tell who wrote what. Mm. So there's a, there's a backstory here. This is not the first time that, that uh, we have performed a song that uh, has involved Clarence Dan Blatchley. Well, we, we had a co-write early on. Uh, Very with early Clarence. on. Yeah, and we, we kept the words pretty much as they were mm-hmm. and continue to be in this little book called Stubble Fields. Uh, published in 1939, uh, but it's called I Stood Upon a Hill, and it was in our very first album. It started our very first album, and we yeah. still play the song. Yeah, we, we, we performed it last night. We're mm-hmm. in Boston right now. We're kind of time-traveling, of course, as we've mentioned. Uh, but basically, we have uh, I Stood Upon a Hill, and it was our first co-write. And well, first co-write that we published. Yeah. I, oh, that's true. We don't talk about the other We don't one. talk about that first song. So... Um, but yeah, so I stood upon a hill. It's kind of like a fiddle tune, an old-timey fiddle tune. Uh, I always say like maybe in the tradition of Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings who writes these, they write these timeless things, these pieces of music that you'd swear they were written 100 years ago. And I swear I stood upon a hill could live 100 years ago by the way it sounds. And I, in fact, played it instrumentally at a wedding mm. Uh, in Cincinnati recently with Doug Hamilton on fiddle, who you've already been introduced to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's amazing because we have this tradition that we're trying to push forward, but we want to remember our past. And that's right. Um, this song has a lot of it's, it's evening. Now we, we we've moved uh, forward. We're, I stood upon. Oh a yeah, hill. yeah. I stood upon a hill was early on, and we 
but moving forward in time. It's a very uh, different song. It's a very different song. And I even set one other one to music, which we have not recorded yet. Mm. Um, Another Blatchley. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's a really cool setting. But we slowly try to introduce on our album's uh, co-writes with this one little book, Stubble Fields. And it's a beautiful description of nature. In fact, we're we're in Boston and driving here you see these fields and this book describes exactly that type of scenery um at least how i imagine it mm -hmm. uh, evening has a lot of different instruments being played you kind of uh, went crazy on this one uh, yeah this this is one of the reasons why i played 20 million instruments on it uh, a lot of great musicians on this as we <laughs> said in a, wait a minute and aaron and i i think uh created a beautiful texture with our producer greg hugh brady but we have uh, cello some electric guitar. Uh, we have some electric bass that I played going through this. I did the lead vocals. Brushes. Actually, that's it for me. So, and then Aaron, you did... Um, guitar. Guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, I didn't mean to uh, no. downplay you, you, you your You had role. a big vision for this. I had a huge vision. I just kind of said, I got to do this. Next, next, next. So, um, that's evening. And yeah. we just went on a journey it's a vision quest quite honestly i mean uh find your your hallucinogen of choice and go to town please uh, yeah. actually our our lawyer said not to say that we, so we, can't we, say we, that, we no. redact that okay S sorry basil um there's a really interesting spot in this song um when you taught me the guitar part i was really i wasn't surprised that you had me do this but i was kind of delighted that uh there, there's like it has a certain rhythm to it in the way that I that I play um bum 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 and then, but like halfway through a solo you have me just change to a finger picking pattern and uh it's 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 so subtle and it's this is this whole song is like a dreamscape and that's sort of the moment where the dream kind of you just fall into a different dimension um, your production and your and Greg's production and cello, just the vision. This is a song that you kind of surrender to, that you you feel that maybe you know you're not listening with your thinking brain like maybe you were on the on the last track uh, about the baseball team, but but you're just sort of floating above this song and letting it carry you away. Yeah, and I think when we started. Well, let's play that segment let's play there. that section. Yeah. And we're going to play the transition from the bump, bump in the instrumental to the finger picking, just so you can hear that. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, there's another section that I, I think is really neat. It's just the start of it. And in fact, we've used this track as our intro music. Oh, right. Yes. Just a little... You've already heard some of the song already.
So we've got we've got some brushes with snare drum. We've got um, a guitar that comes in. We've got a, a cello bass line thing. Uh, and it's just, I think it's a neat groove. Okay, and with that, I want to play the outro also. Mm-hmm. The outro, getting back into the vocals. We go into this dreamland. There's a lot of reverb swirling around, all that stuff. When you hear the whole thing, you'll, you'll be able to really dive in. But as it sneaks in, we get the you know the snare drum to get mm-hmm. back in there and then all of a sudden we're, we're back and the goal was to lead people back without them being like okay without like a hard now we're here you know like that's mm-hmm. uh i always call those like well if you're modulating to a different key we joke around and say it's a barry manilow modulation because you're just going to the next key without any warning mm-hmm. but we kind of nudge you there gently so um Here's that little transition back. The far sea Those are all the examples I can think of mm-hmm. to play. Any other thoughts on your end? You know, I'm just uh, when you when you brought this to me first before you played it. And you said I'm 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 going to do another one by Clarence Dan Blatchley. I was a little surprised because I thought that that we had um, we had done everything that we, we we could with this fellow, but you really took it to a different dimension. That you know this th- this guy was born. I forget exactly when he was born, but it was more than well more than a hundred years ago. And you've kind of taken something very I don't want to say old, but 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 something from a different era and combined it with something that sounds extremely modern and uh, it, it makes for a beautiful effect. Yeah. And, and so we're going to introduce our guest. Um, this was a great interview. Yeah. It, it, again, people that you may not know them at all. We, we met through this wild web of networking essentially, but they're the most interesting people. Yeah. Cause they surprise you. Yeah. I mean, Peter, we, we went, looking for a member of the family to basically get their blessing to record the first song. And uh, Peter was was uh, who we found, and it just opened up. It was like a door to an entirely different dimension and a whole other world of, of, of history and, and, and Peter's own world as a musician and uh, just so much other stuff. I, I can't wait for you to hear uh, our interview with uh, Peter Alexander Blatchley. Well, welcome, Peter McDonald Blatchley, to <laughs> our podcast. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. You're thank in you. uh, you're in, in Bath, Maine, right? I am. Uh, I'm on the uh, Bath waterfront, and we we look out over the Kennebec River, and it feels a lot like heaven most of the time. Except last weekend when we had that big storm came through, that was mm. pretty rough. Yeah, a lot of damage, but we're okay. We're talking in the dead of winter. Michael, you found his great uncle's poetry in a chapbook. Is that it, 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 Peter? Do I have that right? That that Clarence Dan was your great uncle? Yes, Clarence Dan was my grandfather's next younger brother. So my grandfather was born in 1880, and Clarence Dan was born in 1881. And he lived until until roughly when? 
about 1974, I think, 73, 74, right in that range. Yeah, the last couple of years of his life, um, he moved out to, and lived in Silver City, and that's where he passed away. He actually lived with my family for about a year when I was 10 or 11 years old. So I had a lot of personal interaction with him during that time. Where is Silver City? Silver City, uh, New Mexico is on the southwestern border uh, next near Arizona. Michael, why don't you uh, just introduce us a little bit to the the book that you found? Well, I had just moved from graduate school um, and finishing in Cincinnati, Ohio at University of Cincinnati or at CCM, not the hockey gear. Uh, that's College Conservatory of Music. And I was like, well, what do I do? Well, I followed an ex-girlfriend over to Philadelphia region and ended up living in um, Collegeville, PA. I don't have a bed, but I have an air mattress. Or I, may, I had a futon, that's what it was. I was like, and I have a coffee table. So I need old books. And so I went to Phoenixville, PA, and went, oh my God, this is such a cool area, and had a small bookstore, which is no longer there, but it was one of those, you know, long time a stairwell up the side of the wall, hole in the wall bookstore. And I found a bunch of old books for coffee table stuff. And I found this little book called Stubble Fields by Clarence Dan Blatchley. And two things struck me as it was old and like 1938. I can't remember the date. Uh, I tried to find my copy. It's somewhere on my bookshelf. We rearranged and, but it was in the mid to late thirties and it was tiny and it would catch people's eyes, hopefully, if I had any friends visiting. And then, uh, number two, it it didn't cost a lot. <laughs> it, was, it was probably maybe $2, and I didn't have a lot of cash on me. And so I just wanted something that looked really good, but it uh, you know, didn't cost a lot. So I always hope my books cost at least $2 in the 100 years. But that's how I found it. And then I started reading it. And I really enjoyed it. it. It was just a beautiful collection of imagery, you know, just short poems that could entertain me for a moment when I'm just sitting down and trying to keep warm and drink a cup of coffee. Histories, you know, led to meeting Aaron Nathans. We ended up co-writing, and that was Stubblefield's book and the tune, I Stood Upon a Hill, came from the poem, I Stood Upon a Hill. And that became the first co-write that Aaron and I ever put together. There, There's the 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 long background of finding the small book and the little gem. And, and from what we hear that that was one of his gems among many other books, because some of the books were used more for humor during family gatherings more so. He, ne than, he never knew that. He never he, knew that. Okay. <laughs> he'd be very dismayed to know that we were laughing at his outrageously bad poetry. Oh. <laughs> but a lot of his early works really, really quite good. I don't know what happened to him that, he got the idea that his muse was uh, never to be questioned. And so that every single thing that he wrote down, he refused to change anything, any punctuation. He wouldn't change anything. And my father uh, and my grandfather, in fact, were, were fond of saying that if he had just had an editor uh, who would throw away about 90% of what he wrote, he would actually be remembered as as one of the great minor poets, <laughs> but because some of this stuff really is great, and you stumbled across yes uh, a couple of really nice things, which is it was such a surprise when you first contacted me because I've, you know Clarence Dan 
has just been like a laughing stock in our family uh, on so many levels. Uh, he, he was married to a woman named Margaret, um, who was probably the most prudish version of uh, uh, early 20th century female that you could find. And they never had any kids. And the family joke was that they, they, they didn't know how. So, <laughs> so poor Clarence Dan. Unfortunately, he he was really love lovelorn, um, and his later books of poetry um, are many are dedicated to one different woman after another. And as kids, you know, we we had no sympathy for what he might be going through as as a lonely old man. So we just made fun of, not to his face, but we made fun of his poetry all the time. And we um, we vacationed in Maine every summer and on an island with no electricity. So we would sit around by candlelight and lamplight reading these poems aloud and just laughing hysterically at how, how Clarence would force a rhyme or force the rhythm it, it just he would twist things around in his later works and it's some of them are just so banal and so forced that they're just hysterically funny but like i say there's some of them's really really good and <laughs> i was so pleased when you guys found the value in some of his earlier work uh, again surprised when I, you contacted me recently to let me know that another one has now been set to music so that's that's quite something. You know, just a small aside. Um, when I was in high school, I was like, I'm going to write an epic poem. So I wrote this awful thing called The Adventures of Chicken and Big Toe. And their whole goal was to go to the moon and find out if it was really made out of cheese. That was the whole goal of this epic poem. And it it was awful. But my friend Jonathan got a hold of a copy. And at lunchtime, he would read portions of my not so epic epic poem uh to our friends <laughs> i got to experience it firsthand of people laughing at the ridiculous nature of it while i'm turning bright red in the corner <laughs> oh, no. i took it like a champ but you know like it it, took, it was the first thing where people realized that they could get me to turn bright red <laughs> by embarrassing me and it was through my epic poem so there you go well then you just have to own that it's ridiculous and that that was the whole point exactly uh, yeah at this I point something I, that was funny <laughs> so. i made a miniature version gave it to my friend ken stewart and he he actually still has it and will sometimes quote it to me in conversations and i'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm amazingly amused you know we all have works that we wish we had never put out there for most of us it, it's it, it's our early work and then we kind of get our footing if we write long enough and and we eventually hope people forget about what we did before and maybe with <laughs> Clarence Dan it was the other way around uh, mm -hmm. but but i think the three of us share some experience as as self-published uh, musicians which is you know not all that different from what Clarence Dan did i guess he he was uh maybe ahead of his time as a self-published person when we first saw the, the the book the poetry book we thought you know here is a distinguished dead poet uh, but what what did what was his life really like what did he do for a living do you remember oh well first of all you got to go back to his early life um he and the family uh, were settled on the 
uh, western slope of the Colorado Rockies in a little tiny town called Delta, which only one year before the family moved there, and he wasn't, let's see, they moved there just as he was being born. So it would have been about 18, maybe 1882 or 83. And it had only just a year or two earlier been taken away from the Ute Indians. And the Ute Indians had been moved to a reservation and the entire community was living in constant fear that the Indians were going to uh, revolt and attack. Uh, there were bank robbers, there were cattle thieves, uh, there were sheep farmers coming through, uh, gobbling up the land. Uh, sheep pull up grass by the roots, by as you may know, and destroy the land for any other kind of um, domestic wildlife. So, wait, that's a contradiction in terms. Domestic <laughs> animals. <laughs> Wasn't the, I mean, so so you, you actually edited and, and released a, a memoir of, of his father's time out on the frontier. It was actually my grandfather, which was Clarence's brother. So it was my grandfather was Clarence's older brother by one year. And when my grandfather was 13 and Clarence was either 10, uh, 11 or possibly 12, uh, I don't remember when Clarence's birthday is, but what time of year. But uh, on September 7th of 1893, um, my great-grandfather, their father, was shot and killed by bank robbers. And there were eight boys in the family, uh, ranging from my grandfather's older brother, who was uh, two years older, to a little baby who was only like a 18 months old, uh, eight of them. And a, a ninth uh, was in utero, what my great-grandmother miscarried after all the shock of the, of the murder of her husband. And they were raised in absolute financial deprivation. They lived in a two-room cabin with a dirt floor. Uh, they went through years and years of uh, intense financial struggle, near starvation. And I think you can see the impact of, of this trauma in literally in the generations of the family that have followed. So uh, I have never, <laughs> I've never really tried to do a psychoanalytical understanding of my a great uncle, um, but he was obviously a very troubled man. Um, he tried to commit suicide when he was living in our house in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, when I was about 11, I came home from school one day and there was a an ambulance out front. And he had apparently had taken an entire bottle of aspirin. And oh, goodness. Just, he was so lonely and so miserable. This was a few years after his wife had died. And he showed up on our on our doorstep after he had sold his house in Tacoma Park, Maryland, with the intention of driving to Florida with his then girlfriend. But they, apparently as they got out on the highway in his brand new Packard 1950, it wasn't brand new by then, but he had this beautiful old, beautiful Packard, uh, just a fantastic car, but he was not a very good driver. And he was weaving all of the road and his girlfriend made him stop the car she got out, took her suitcase, and said, I'm not going. And that was it. He turned around. He had no house to come to. He ended up driving up to our house, talking to my mother, and asking if he could just stay with us for a while. So mm -hmm. that was a pretty intense and sad, emotionally really charged moment. 
And most of his later poetry uh, kind of reflects that sense of loneliness. At the same time, he has this really wonderful sense of beauty, his appreciation for nature. A lot of his poems, especially a lot of the early poems, he talks about um, nature in the way that Willa Cather might talk about it in, in her prose. His poetry, with the, he talks about the, the, um, the beauty of the aspens on the mountainsides and the wind rustling through the sagebrush. And he, he evokes all this beautiful imagery. Um, so he is a very complex man. He was a PhD economist. He worked in the Commerce Department of the United States government. He published the definitive book on tariffs for what that's worth. <laughs> so, it's it's uh, definitely there's some there's some copies online of that one I've seen. I'm sure there are. Well, his his older brother, my grandfather, was also a PhD uh, political scientist, and his wife, my grandmother, was also a PhD political scientist, and they both worked at the Brookings Institution. So when I started later on in life learning about what their childhood was and what had gone on in this family, that they were raised in absolute destitute poverty until my grandfather was about 25 years old when Clarence would have been 23 or 24. And finally, my grandfather uh, hitchhiked, basically he jumped a train, a cattle train <laughs> and headed east and ended up at Oberlin College. Uh, at which point, you know, he he tried to get in and they said, well, how many years of education have you had? And he says, well, I've only gotten through the third grade. Huh. So they sent him down to the Oberlin Academy in another part of town. But within six years, he had graduated uh, from Oberlin College, went on and got a Ph.D. from Columbia. And uh, but he couldn't get scholarships anywhere because he was too old. He was 25 when he started. So yeah. he was 32 years old when he graduated from Oberlin. Wow. I'm still on the waiting list at Oberlin, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, Clarence uh, went to Grinnell College because uh, Clarence's Clarence's great uncle, and I can't quite figure out what the relationship was there. He was my great great uncle, I guess, um, was the president of Grinnell College at, at the time. Hmm. So it was kind of a shoe in for him. Um, but then he ended up, you know, they had no kids. So in years and years and years of working in the government and living very frugally, he ended up with over a million dollar estate. Wow. Uh, which he had promised to my mother. Well, this is how he could afford to self-publish all these books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he ended up leaving all his money to Grinnell College instead of his promise. He forgot about the promise to my oh, mom. Oh, man. Wow. A million dollars back in that that time was probably worth a lot more. Well, the deal with Grinnell was that, um, and I wonder if somebody from Grinnell ends up hearing this, but Grinnell made a deal with him. The development officer promised him a permanent shelf in the library for his books of poetry, and that, that would be he would be eternally honored at Grinnell. Well, a few about maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I contacted Grinnell and said, I'm, you know, I'm doing some research on my great uncle and his works, and I understand he left his papers and his books to you guys. And they said, well, let's do some research. They came, I, I got in the mail a, a little tiny envelope with about three or four Xeroxed pieces of, you know, something Xeroxed from the cover of an old book or something. Absolutely nothing. And I said, well, what about all the books in the library? And they said, well, we don't, 
but I can't find any. Mm. Oh no. So wow. his entire legacy at Grinnell was just wiped out. Goodness. In fact, maybe you guys have one of the books that came from Grinnell. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, cause I can't find stubble fields online anywhere. Quite honestly, uh, I was yeah. doing some search just to, you know, I just did a quick search, but I thought it'd pop up. And uh, Every once so. in a while, um, a, a Libris or one of those rare book, old book uh, marketing companies will come up with a copy. Um, so, but it's getting harder and harder to find his work. Oddly, you used to be able to buy it for nothing, as you did, for two yeah. bucks. Yeah. Well, now you go online and you see stuff going for $100 or $150. I wonder what that makes my shelf of Clarence Dance poetry work. <laughs> Before we turned on the uh, the recording, you, you had mentioned that that you have a shelf just above your head of uh, most of his works. Yeah, I I probably have ninety five percent of what he wrote, except the book on tariffs. I don't I don't have that one. <laughs> but yeah, I have almost all his poetry, and my brother has whatever I don't. Now you said that your brother and you have a little competition going on I'd, I'd love to hear about that again well that was several years ago and we were uh it was kind of a joke uh a, a good-natured uh delving into the family history but we sort of had this friendly competition where we would see who who could find the most books and mo the most not duplicates but who could create the biggest library of clarence dance works and my brother really got into it, and he ended up writing uh, a facetious book of poetry called Word Pictures of the Midwest, uh, <laughs> which is a, a takeoff on the – Clarence Dan wrote numerous volumes called Word Pictures of the West. Oh. <laughs> Another one, he, he, he had, I think, 10 volumes of poetry titled Seasons and Days. Volumes one, two, three, blah, blah, blah. I think he forgot and left off seven or eight. There's a gap there, but I think between seven and 10. But mm. it, it was just, we just saw it as so self aggrandizing, if that's the right word, and so lacking in humility that it was laughable because he, he really thought that he was a great poet. And the sad thing is, if he had just had a partner, like an editor, he probably would have been. You know, I mean, as musicians, you guys know, you throw out 90% of the crap you create, which I do. Just the other day, I was in my computer, and I found all these tunes that I had written over the years, and I started listening to them, and I said, oh, my God, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't go into a recording studio with that stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a, You know, we always do this February songwriting month aaron and i have done a lot of co-writes through there right and then we have individual songs so a lot of these songs make the cut but a good chunk of them don't and uh we both have many many folders of songs that just uh sit there and but that's where the editing side comes in it's it's great right. to have the editing brain as a crutch but that's when you're writing and then you can turn on that editing br editing brain later to help smooth things out and what i love about songwriting or composing for unaccompanied cello or I, I wrote two string quartet pieces that went through a, many rounds of editing is that the end result is just wonderful and if you never went through that this is awful stage and brought it to a place of presentability and um, 
maybe respectability. I'm not sure. You know, it's that's very subjective. So, um, but you know, I love that process, and I and I I, I wonder if in your interactions with uh, Clarence Dan, if he seemed like he wa- had humility as a person, whereas like the publishing side gave the sense that he had no humility. Cause I, I'm always interested in the, the balance of like, this person seems so um, full of themselves, but it's just that first impression because it might be a t-shirt they're wearing, or it might be like, they have really nice shoes, but maybe it's their only good pair of shoes. You know, you never know, right? You find out later. So, so it, was there a, a difference between the person in real life versus his persona that, is kind of implied through self-publishing so much. I think so. Um, he was a very kind man. And some of my earliest memories are um, he would show up at our house. Um, this is before he ended up moving in with us. He would come to visit from Tacoma Park. Uh, we were living in Chevy Chase. He was in, So it's not far away. Uh, it seemed a lot further back in those days, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not very far. So he would come and visit and, as a little boy, he would he would have me and my brothers come out to the street and he would open up the trunk of his Packard and in there we would find all these toys and stuff. Mm. So he, he was very thoughtful and kind. Um, I didn't see him as egotistical at all as a human being. Um, that came later. And I, I think he had very, very poor judgment. Um, mm. And I think that... I think there's something in the family. There's a streak of autism that runs through my family, and I'm pretty sure it started with the traumatic experience of their father's murder because I see it in all branches of the family. Uh, All my cousins from the Blatchley cousins, I, I see it there. And it's, 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 I've seen it myself. It's been diagnosed in me. It's not like, you know, sitting in the rain and rocking back and forth kind of autism, but it is spectrum you know, where you, you're not necessarily sensitive to social cues, for example. Um, mm. uh, that's, that's a, it can often come off as looking egotistical, mm. but it really isn't. Mm. Uh, it can look narcissistic, but it, it really is not. Uh, so it's an interesting diagnosis. My wife is a psychotherapist, so <laughs> I've <Okay. been> through. <laughs> whether I liked it or not, <laughs> I got plenty of feedback. But because you know she has met many mem- members of my family, and and seeing things through her eyes has been quite a revelation. And to start understanding my uncle Clarence uh, through that lens uh, has actually been very helpful, and his. Um, given me a whole lot more compassion for him, mm. like the truth. I mean, I, I started off by laughing at him and mocking his poetry and stuff, but I actually, I, I have a great deal of compassion for him. And he was an incredibly intelligent man. He was super intelligent. You know, he, he was top of his game in, in what he did as an, as an economist. But, uh, you know, he lived a strange life. His, his wife, they had no kids. His wife was very prudish, would not let him drink coffee or tea. She would make him a cup of warm water each morning for breakfast. And he would have a cup of warm water. And then they would drive to Tacoma Park. He worked at the Commerce Department. She worked at the Library of Congress. 
So he would drop mm-hmm. her off at the Library of Congress and go straight to the nearest coffee shop <laughs> <laughs> and dose himself up on Joe. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on there that is, is both funny but also deserving of a great deal of sympathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the legacy of trauma in uh, you know can be certainly passed down from generation to to generation. I know the uh, the impact of autism firsthand. Uh, my, my my daughter is uh, is autistic. Oh man, and, uh, I'm sorry. Is she um, high? Yeah, fun- no, I, I mean, is she high functioning or is she on the? You know, I mean, she she she's definitely, uh, you know. She functions well in 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 her own way. Wow. Uh, you know, she's she's got this great island of ability as a musician, um, and uh, you know, she struggles in other areas. Yeah, I think that's so, common. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, I, we understand you know autism to be more more genetic than experiential, and uh, yes, I think so. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's really a, a fascinating. Um, you know, phenomenon and very much misunderstood. Yeah. If, if you've met one person with autism, you've, you've met one person with autism. My uh, brother is, is much more autistic. I mean, he's very, very much further along the spectrum, very insensitive, completely oblivious to social cues. So he has to be kind of his wife. We were amazed. Actually, he got married and extremely happy and he's happily married, but she would have to script his social interactions. So if he and I went out to lunch, he would like look at his watch. And as soon as an hour was up, he says, well, I, I, I guess lunch is over, (laughs) 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 but that sort of thing. But he was in and is, I mean, he's still alive and he's incredibly intelligent. Uh, the best Mm -hmm. chess player I ever knew. Uh, he was a very, very good cellist and, you know, he excelled in some areas. He worked for the, Department of Justice in the Immigration Division, and and was he never had any great ambition. He just worked as a as a clerk, as a legal clerk, but he knew everything, and and he was like a, a compendium, like a library of knowledge of everything that was in in that department. So everybody depended upon him. He was there for thirty years, just like working away. So mm. yeah, it it is a spectrum. Autism is a spectrum issue. Uh, I think a lot, there's a lot more of it in our society than we're often aware of. Certainly. And I, I know that, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, it just wasn't, you know, back back in uh, Clarence Tan's time, uh, people understood a lot less. Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen a huge surge in autism in our country, but we have to question, is it, because the diagnostics are better and people understand what it is, or is it because we're actually seeing an increase of autism? So I don't know and how this relates to Uncle uh, to Clarence Dan. <laughs> so, well, for, it's hard to diagnose somebody who's been gone for that long. A little bit, but you can get some ideas from him. I mean, in terms of like completely socially inappropriate behavior. The example I have of this is uh, I have one of his books of poetry that he gave to me as a birthday present on my 10th birthday huh. with a little dedication. Oh. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have it, but what a completely inappropriate thing to give to a 10-year-old. 
you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. His book of poetry of lonely poems to his girlfriends. (laughs) You know? Oh, man. Oh, Ilse, when I think of you. I on the, I see the mountain blue and I think of you with their peaks of shiny white, but your breast is too fair for sight. I mean, Ooh. that's the kind of stuff that he descended to in his later years. But you're probably glad to have the book now. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have a whole collection of his books. Exactly. I'm, I'm super glad that you guys are finding the the value in in his work and and our, and honoring it and saying it to music I, I think that's that's really cool well we have two people to talk about in this wonderful splendid spectacular advertising break paying our bills with the imagination of fake money because we're making up the ads as we go but we have a hat from a special company that we like. Yes, we're here today. Uh, uh, they're not technically our sponsor, but suffice it to say, we really like uh, Sparkle Town Studios. Uh, they're a uh, do I call them a clothing company? They, they don't actually make the, com- the the clothing, I don't think, but they they certainly decorate them with fantastic stuff. You could get a, a Rainbow Vision uh, knit beanie with eyes on it. You can get a Smash eyes, the Patriarchy uh, uh, knit, knit cap. Or, or, or baseball cap. But I think what the, the stuff that they do that is really interesting is oh, that they, they, they take things that really have never been on uh, a baseball cap before and, and, they, and they go there. They, they put it there. It's whimsy. It's excitement. It's fun. My, my son has been wearing one of their hats, a banana hat, for years. I was hoping that he'd become a baseball fan, but instead he's now a baseball cap fan, which is part of the way there. I'll take it. Um, but so, so he's hitting. He's taking a banana, holding like a baseball, and hitting kumquats, something like that. Okay. Yes. Um, but nary a day goes by when he d- isn't wearing his banana hat from Sparkle Town Studio. I see a hat. One With of their hats is right it. here. You can can you can you see it? Uh, everybody out there. Yes. Uh, take a look. So here he, here is a testimonial. I'm holding it right up to the microphone so all you listeners can see it. Can you see it? Can you? What is, what is this hat? I'm a broccoli. This is a hat with uh, uh, a broccoli. broccoli, a smiling broccoli on it. It is my favorite hat to wear. Charlie and I bought it on the same day. Mm-hmm. And I uh, like to wear it all the time to keep the sun off me. And uh, how, how does it make you feel to be wearing a, a baseball cap with a broccoli on it? Special. Is it smiling? Is it a smiling broccoli? Oh, it's it, happy. It it's happy. It's happy. And that's the thing I love about Sparkle Town Studios is that everything is just so gosh darn happy. I mean, even the the uh, the, the hot dog on their uh, on their knit cap is is happy. Anything else you'd like to say? I'd like to say my interpretation of Sparkle Town Studios is a local artist who. Uh, Sells online and sells, I, I know for sure, at uh, farmer's markets, which is where I came upon them. So uh, keep your eye out for them if you're in the Boston area or are shopping online. Thank you. Thank you. And we've got one more thing. One more thing. Our friend Phil Henry has created, has created an album. A new album. As mentioned in the Mastering the Art of French Cooking. 
wait a minute, that's the wrong You're man. just reading everything in front of you. <laughs> no, no, he's created a new album. It's a terrific new album. Yeah. It's called MacGuffin. I, I can't stop listening to this thing. Um, uh, Phil, of course, uh, I co-wrote uh, Old Joe's Chair with Phil. So if you get a chance uh, to listen to MacGuffin, I would highly recommend it. Back to our guest. Back to our guest. Yeah, and what a neat thing to to hear that your family has a musical legacy because uh, you said your brother. My brother, Alex Blashley, is a professor at Notre Dame. Yeah. Uh, and uh. leads the Notre Dame Chorale. And his son, my nephew James, is the music director of the Johnstown Symphony Orchestra okay. in Pennsylvania. My great, great, no, my great grandfather on my father's, on my grandmother's side, uh. my grandmother's. Clarence Dan's sister-in-law's father, yes, was a very famous hymn writer. His his name was his name was Johnson Oatman Jr., and he wrote over five thousand hymns. Um, he died in nineteen twenty-two, so this is the hundredth anniversary of his his death. And you probably know some of them. Higher Ground, uh, uh, another one. His most famous one, which I just set to new music, um, is is called um, Count Your Blessings. Count your blessings, count them one by one, count your blessings, see what God has done. That's, I mean, I love that. That's kind of along the same lines as what Clarence Dan might write, actually. But I never liked the music. It was, the music was from like the 1890s or something. And, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And it was a style of music. I just, the old square Puritan hymn, entirely predictable. Wrote all the four parts with voice leading and everything. He didn't write the music; he wrote the lyrics. Oh, okay. and other okay. people, other people wrote. The, he recruited other people to write the music. Oh, okay. okay. So, there's the other people who I had trouble ah. with. So, I'm I'm on a campaign now to set to set his better hymns, his more famous hymns. I'm trying to set them to more modern music. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, my yeah. and then there seems to be are there. Did Aaron? Did we meet? We met. Um, we met his father. Yes. Okay. It who played cello. He was a cellist. Yeah. Yeah. And really lucky to meet him and uh, play music for him, and it was just a, an honor. And uh, as a cello player, I'm always really happy when there's other cello players in the world. That I guess in this case, he played with the Baltimore Symphony. Yeah. And um, I mean, this is uh, Fred. Yeah. Actually. yeah. Your, your late father. So after we uh, recorded, I stood upon a hill, uh-huh. and we, we knew that that your father uh, was still living at the time. He was in his what nineties? Yes, uh, uh, well into his nineties. We knew that he was the nephew of Clarence Dan. So we wanted. He was living in Washington. We had a show in Washington, and we stopped by to to, to see him for for an hour or so and play him a little music and and uh, interview him and somewhere around here I've, I've i've got the recording of that well it was, it was so cool that you guys did that it, it's just a wonderful gift that that you guys could find the time to do that it meant a lot to him it meant a great deal to me and you ask about the musical nature of my family it, it goes back a long way clarence's mother was adele Bradley Blatchley. She died in 1927 visiting Clarence. She came for a visit in Tacoma Park, and Clarence Dan lived in this little uh, bungalow with one of these classic stairs that go down to the street. He lived up on a hillside, 
it, it was it was like you may have seen uh there's some it's like a Buster Keaton movie or something where they're trying to move a piano up at this huge set of stairs and they're just having a terrible time with it. It was a set of stairs like that, and there was no railing. And she tripped and fell down the stairs and died of her injuries mm. in 1927. Oh. But she was a pianist. And when her husband was shot and killed by the McCarthy gang in 1893, um, they had to sell everything they had to survive uh, or it was repossessed by the bank. And the bank came and repossessed her piano. And for decades, she practiced her fingerings on the kitchen table. And later on, when she moved to Boulder, all the boys sort of got together and provided some support for her. And they bought her a piano. And she was able to sit down and play it because she'd been practicing on the kitchen table all those years. So, yeah, there's a lot of music in in the family. It goes back generations. It, it That's really a, a fascinating book. I, I read, uh, you know, a, a good deal of at least the beginning. And uh, the, the house that, that they lived in was made of wood that had been set on fire by the uh, by the native americans on their way out of town is that right well something along those lines it 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 was scorched wood uh scorched it, it came wood. from a burned area so the wood was very dry uh, and very hard but yeah they built their own places and uh, in the in the book it's it's called um my first life uh, becoming a man on the colorado frontier by frederick frank blatchley I, I just think it is a fantastic tale. Oh, it is. I'm, I'm glad you have a copy of it. Uh, I don't think it's gotten anywhere near the attention that it deserves because it has such a, a personal history that is untold. And it, it's talking about the society. He goes into great length talking about the society and the economy and the challenges, the, the, the water systems, the irrigation systems, how the farming, the boom and bust of the farming world out there in the uh, late 1800s and the early 1900s. And it's a unique book. And it, it honestly, it should be in every Colorado library there is. But so far, there hasn't been much uptake. So I'm glad you guys did, did you? How did you come upon this memoir? I found a letter in my father's belongings. Let's see, when did this first happen? When I moved my father out of his apartment in 2008, and into the retirement residence, I had to clear out this double size apartment across from the Watergate in Washington, D.C. This huge amount of stuff. And I came across a letter addressed to my father from the University of Colorado saying that they had they didn't have the funds to be able to publish the book as they had promised they would. Um, so they're returning the manuscript. Well, so I said, Pop, where's the manuscript? And he says, I, I have no idea. He, he said, I think my sister has it. So his sister was living here in Maine, and I bugged her for it for years, and she couldn't find it. She didn't know where it was. Well, she died a couple of months after my father did in 2016. And I told her daughters, my cousins, please keep your eye out for this manuscript. They found it in a box mm. underneath the stairway in the garage. Okay. And it's just a miracle that it wasn't water damaged. And I sent it to, I, I got it and I, I made copies of it and sent it to my daughter who transcribed it into a Word document so we could manipulate it and edit it electronically. And then um, I found also with that box and the manuscript 
were all the photographs that he had intended to have published with the book. Mm. And that's an amazing resource. So the book has many of those photographs in it, uh, which are, tell an amazing story by themselves. Uh, it's a pretty cool document. Can you tell the story about Frederick's grandfather and how he uh, how he found God? Uh, well, th- th- it comes from a very long line of ministers. I mean, the Blatchleys first came, Thomas Blatchley came, uh, I think, in 1636, I think, is when they first settled in Guilford, Connecticut. So they were on the next boat after the Mayflower, the next group of of uh, pilgrims after the Mayflower. And they settled in Guilford and they became ministers and doctors and farmers. That was all three vocations passed through generation after generation after generation. So my great, great grandfather, that was Clarence Dan's grandfather was a minister. His name was the Reverend Eben Blatchley and a farmer and a doctor, long family tradition. And he had a he, his oldest son was a was a um, a soldier in the Union Army, who apparently was captured and was in a, a Confederate prison, which were notoriously horrible because they had no food. I mean, uh, they were miserable. But back in those days, apparently, you could also ransom out a soldier. So it, it often happened that you go and ransom out your son who was captured by the Confederates. So. My great-great-grandfather left his farm in Dane County, Wisconsin, on horseback and rode down on his way to Vicksburg to try to find his son and ransom him out, and was picked up by a small contingent of Confederate soldiers who accused him of being a spy, a Union spy, and gave him a hasty field trial and put him on his horse, put a noose around his neck, hung it over a tree, and they were about to kick the horse and leave him dangling when he asked if he could say a few final words. And they granted him that wish, and he started praying for the welfare of their souls because they were about to kill an innocent man. Well, he prayed so fervently that they got the point. <laughs> and they took the noose off, untied his hands, and sent him on his way. Well, that was in 1865, right at the very end of the war. And he was so moved by this experience and by what he had seen riding south Writing then through the uh, the deep south, that he sold the farm in Dane County, Wisconsin, and purchased land outside of Kansas City in a little community called Old Kandaro, also Wyandot. Uh, it's it's right on the river. It it became for a while the city dump, but for the city of Kansas City, Kansas, and he started a college there. It's the first college west of the Mississippi for former slaves and displaced Native Americans. So the Quindaro tribe was part of the Delaware Indian tribe, had been displaced to this same place. So uh, this is where he settled and created his life's work was, was to run this little college and to educate these people and give them a chance to have a life. Well, he was on his deathbed in 1877 when my great-grandfather, uh, Clarence's father, came from the out west where he because he had tuberculosis so they had sent him out west in the drier climate so he came rushing back um his father had already died but his cousin was there and she had been 
she was a student at Oberlin, had grown up in Bangkok, Thailand, and they immediately fell in love. They were first cousins, and they immediately fell in love and got married. And I just get a note. I just got this notice from genealogical sites. I'm on too damn many of them, but uh, apparently they got married on September 5th, 1877, which was just a few days after his father had died. But then, because they were first cousins and because he had tuberculosis, they went out west and basically were away from the whole family and the judgment and the condemnation of the whole family for you know marrying first cousins. Although that seemed to happen a lot back then. On my other side of my family, maybe this might explain something about me, but <laughs> on my mother's side, it's the same thing. My great-grandparents on my mother's side were also first cousins. Oh. But anyway, they moved out west, and that's they had all their children in Colorado. So my grandfather was born, um, I think it was Gunnison, and uh, Clarence was, but they moved around quite a bit. Um, as they followed the railroad and, and the, as the frontier was moving, um, my great grandfather was a pharmacist, uh, among other things. And they just had to follow where the development was going. And it was one boom town that went bust after another. And they, they just kept moving around until they finally settled in Delta. That's where my uncle Clarence grew up in Delta, Colorado. And reading the book that you have, uh, my first life, uh, by my grandfather, probably could give you a great deal of insight, uh, especially if you read between the lines about what they were going through, because it was a Mm -hmm. really, really hard life. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a fascinating book and, you know, you've, you've, you've got such a fascinating family and I'm so glad that you are, uh, both, uh, in a position to, and interested in, in, uh, cataloging, capturing, and, and telling these stories uh, about a, a really uh, interesting set of characters um, who, who, who you, some of whom you, 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 you knew firsthand. Yeah. Well, one of my projects, my musical projects, was to create uh, songs that sort of focused in on the major life event or events uh, of each of these ancestors of mine. So I wrote one about uh, my... Uh, grandfather, my great grandfather, who was shot and killed, and I, I wrote it from the point of view of him being a ghost, and oh, telling yeah. the story of how this the bank robbery and the murder took place, and then I wrote another one about his father, my great grandfather, and his that one's called Vicksburg, and it actually won a won an award here in Maine. So, since we're speaking about your own music, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own musical journey and. Uh... You know, what part it's played in your own life? Well, my my mother was a pianist and my father a cellist. And uh, every night I would go to sleep hearing them playing um, cello sonatas, piano and cello sonatas. So it was a lovely, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, Tierney, Chopin. It was a beautiful way um, to be kind of indoctrinated with this musical sense. Um, a lot of it subconscious, I'm sure. My mother sat me down at the piano at the age of four and started me with piano lessons. Uh, by the age of 10, uh, I was studying with Norman Frauenhein um, in Washington, D.C., who was extremely well-known concert, worldwide-known concert pianist. But I didn't really want to play the piano. I wanted to play rock and roll. And <laughs> I convinced my parents that I wanted to play classical guitar. And so 
they got me a, a really not, a simple Gibson classical guitar and got me lessons with Aaron Shearer, who is probably one of the foremost authors of guitar instruction in the world at this point. Um, he ended up being recruited by Peabody Univ- uh, Conservatory to start their guitar department. So I studied with him from the age of 10 until 17. But as soon as I had this guitar in my hands, you know, I was in my bedroom learning Buddy Holly songs and <laughs> George, George Hamilton the Fourth, you know, some of the great old classic 1950s era rock and roll. And uh, then I went on to become a rock and roll musician. I dropped out of college when after one year at St. John's College in Annapolis and started a rock band that became very well known in Washington, D.C. It was called Claude Jones. We named it after our, we were a bunch of stoned out hippies. We didn't know what to call our band. So <laughs> we named it after our equipment manager. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. That's good. That, that was the name of the uh, the mascot at American University where I went was uh, Claude because he was Claude the Eagle. You went to American <laughs> University? Yes. No kidding. Because um, uh, my daughter graduated from there. And, oh. Yeah. And we used to perform there quite often. I, I played there with Tim Harden. I played there with Poco. Um, we played there often. We, we were very, very popular on the uh, American University campus in 1969 and 1970. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a little bit before I was Yeah, I figured. (laughs) That's great, though. You know, one of the other things I noticed, I think from your website, is that you do watercolor. Is that correct? That's true. Okay. And my my grandfather was a very, very amazing watercolor artist, and I dabble badly. But looking at your work, it's beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, it's an avocation. Um, I, for a while, I thought maybe I could be a professional watercolor artist. So um, when I came back from a, a musical tour of New Zealand that I did with the former lead guitar player of the Animals, uh, Vic Briggs, we had a great time. But I took up watercolors while I was there, or retook up watercolors while I was there, and had a body of work when I moved to, to New Mexico. I got the Taos Gallery to represent my works. So I went in one day to check to see how they were hung and and met uh, a young woman who is now my wife. Oh. So oh, wow. that worked out well. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... Uh... So I, I still paint. Uh, I go through, my creative life goes through spurts. And I wonder if this is something that you guys experience too. I'll go through a phase, maybe it's manic depression or maybe it's a function of autism. I don't know. But I will, like last year, I spent four months doing almost nothing but watercolors. So I ended up with probably 60 pretty decent. I mean, I tossed out a bunch of them, but I try to edit myself, <laughs> keep, keep all the ones that are worth showing. But uh, then I just stopped in, in March last year. I just stopped doing watercolors because I had to focus on doing an audiobook version of my own memoir about the 17 years I spent in the cult of the American Sikhs. For 17 years, I had a turban on my head and was a devotee of this con artist named uh, Yogi Bhajan. And there's a whole nother story there, which doesn't relate to your music. But during that time, music was my salvation. Uh, those 17 years, I, I, I did lots and lots of music. I started a rock and roll band 
called the Khalsa String Band, and we toured all over the country, which was really amazing. Uh, we had some amazing, amazing experiences. So it wasn't all negative. It was profoundly adventurous. Mm-hmm. But um, from a psychological point, it was pretty challenging stuff and gave me and continues to give me a lot of insight uh, about cult mentality, which our society is struggling with in a big way right now. I mean, oh, sure. politically, look what the yeah. political cults that are going on out there and the, the religious cults. I, I was just reading a, a, a book, uh, I think by Stephen Hassan, who was a cult expert. He, he was in a cult too. He was in a, the Moonies for 14 years. And um, he, there's something like 3,000 cults, religious and otherwise, that have been identified in the United States as of now, well, it's a pretty, pretty uh, relevant topic. So I've been doing, I'm working on book two of my memoir right now, which is the process of recovering. I left the, the American Sikh community in 1987. So it's been what, 35 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding still remnants of the behavior, behavioral norms and the worldview and stuff that was indoctrinated into us uh, by this cult. Uh, and amazing stuff. I mean, as I find out almost every week I find some new revelation. I say, oh, my God, that that came from being in that cult. This behavior I did or, you know, it's really it's disturbing and exciting at the same time. It it. You know, and probably a muse for all your artistic endeavors. So I can I can see why you you, you your creative your creativity goes from painting to music to memoirs mm-hmm. to writing all this stuff. It's pretty amazing to see uh, how much of a Renaissance person um, you are with your. Well, work stuff. thank you. That's a nice word for it. Other other people might say dilettante, <laughs> <laughs> but I do have a a vast. Um, vast spectrum of interest so i mean last year for example i from from my birthday present i i got um a course in um marine captaincy so i became a sea captain um so i'm a i'm a certified coast guard approved sea captain on top of it (laughs) which i haven't really used for anything but Except, you know, a couple, a couple of times I've taken people out on my boat. But I do have a, a – and it's this runs in the family, I think. It's um, a, a very wide range of interests. So you might find it with Clarence Dan's poetry, in fact. Mm, definitely. Yeah, from from, uh, from the Western landscapes to the, the women he uh, was – infatuated with later in his life every week so almost every week and the books of poetry that he translated from the italian french and german so yeah he's he was quite something and a very very handsome man he was um if you look at the pictures of him in the flyleaf of the various books of poetry he was incredibly handsome and this is something else that ran through the family. And I think it was a, a problem because my father, as you met, you met my father. He looked like at the age of 94, 95, when you met him, he still looked Ashen. like a movie star. I mean, oh, yeah. his shock of white hair pulled back, his 
square jaw, sophisticated, very intelligent face. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he was True. just an amazing guy. And it got, I think it got a lot of the men in the family into deep trouble. Ah. <laughs> well, on, on that note, uh, we should, we're coming up on an hour here. Wow. I think. Uh, really, thank you. It this has is been. wonderful. These are great stories and, and you've been incredibly generous with, uh, with your memories and with your time to, uh, to share it with, with us and, and with the people uh, who will be listening to this podcast. Hopefully there'll, there'll, there'll be a, uh, at least a few. Well, I, I hope that it adds something to the appreciation for who Clarence Dan was and how what you're doing musically is honoring him and honoring the past, which I think is something super, super important that, that we draw from the past and we honor our ancestors. It's something that I didn't figure out until much later in my own life that, wow, you know, I have this incredible connection to my ancestors and who they were and what they went through has an impact on my life and who I am and how I think and how I am physically and emotionally and mentally. It's all informed by generations. And Clarence Dan was an important piece of that. And he left a record with all his good and bad poetry. So (laughs) thank you for what you guys are doing. Oh, our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Aaron and I want to thank Peter Blatchley for letting us interview him and thank him for being the Renaissance person who does so many things. He's an author, a musician, a boat builder. You go down the list, you probably can do it. And thank you for being our guest. Thank you, Peter. We're going to play the song for you. So here it is in the entirety of its fantastical awesomeness that makes for a hallucinogenic journey without the encouragement from drugs. Put on Um, your broccoli hat. That's right. Here we go. to rest a soft wind bends the slender blades of the dune grasses in the west a pale cloud turns to pink and fades
mercy croons itself to rest A soft wind bends the slender blades Of the dune grasses in the west A pale cloud turns to pink and fades Across the fields the dying tones Of bells are born the herdsman calls A scattered flock Drones, the voice of sleep and evening falls. The voice of sleep and evening falls. The voice of sleep and evening falls. Ah, just take a breath. Ooh, you know, brisk, baby. You've gone to the town that had a village drone that's not mechanical. Um, we've got a word of the day. Word of the day. What's what's your word of the day, Michael? Mitochondria. Oh my God, you win. I, I just should go home right now. Yeah. Um, I'll never top that. No, I, I insist. You should. You should um, at least give your word. Really? Yeah. I'm, okay. I want to hear it. Feedback. Like microphone feedback, or like advice. Well, why don't you give me some feedback about my word of the day? Um, it could use work. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, on that you, note, you've been listening to the Nathan's, Nathan's and Ron cast. cast. Peace. Ciao.